the snow globes that you shake at Christmas and it's this beautiful snowy picture. I said that, that imagine that's our life. And somebody didn't just shake it. They just, they threw it on the ground and they shattered it. You're listening to Deal Closers, brought to you by WebsiteClosers.com, a show about how to build your e-commerce business to be profitable, scalable, and one day, even sellable. I'm Jason Gillikin, and on the show today, Website Closers' Brent Fisher, Isaac Porter, and I talked to someone who overcame tragedy and found a way to break through in the extremely crowded hair care industry. In the hair care market, the total market value is about $100 billion worldwide and over $15 billion in the United States. That seems like a huge opportunity, but the market is dominated by big name players like L'Oreal, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, and Unilever. So one way to tap into the market is to come up with a specific niche product. And that's exactly what Beth and Cordial de Mayo did back in 2007. At the time, they were both working in the beauty industry and they saw a gap. There wasn't a product that would make fine, thin hair beautiful with natural ingredients. So they teamed up with a chemist they knew in the industry, and they launched Helium Hair. With their connections, they start off pretty well, even if Beth and Cordial didn't always agree. Our strategic ideas didn't necessarily align. For instance, we were only selling to the licensed cosmetologist at the time, and he did not want to take credit cards. He wanted to only offer COD. And I thought, are you living in the freaking dark ages? Like, no, nobody carries a checkbook anymore. I was the one who was very intricate into the details. He would have an idea and then I would implement. One of those ideas was around packaging. And as a small company, they needed to find manufacturers who would deliver a thousand products instead of a typical minimum of around 30,000. And because they were self-invested, those thousand needed to be attractive right away. He would drive out to the Hamptons to do his creative thinking. And he was sitting out there at the beach. It was like four o'clock and it was this beautiful blue sky. And our products are designed for a client that has fine and thin hair. And so you're virtually weightless, you're water soluble, you're light, it's airy. And he looked at the sky and he said, oh my God, this is a color we need for the bottles. Went to Home Depot, got color Pantones, literally held them up to the sky. And that's how we got our baby blue bottles. I love that. And so you, you've got a, a product. Um, and I, I read that you started going door to door to salons. Is, is that right? Yeah. Well, we, I, I always say we did it the hard way, the wrong way, and the expensive way. And I don't know which one was worse. Um, But when we first initially launched, we launched with distributors. We had a big launch in New York and Times Square at the W Hotel. And his background had been working with distributors. So we thought this is the path we're going to follow. So we very quickly learned, though, if you are not spiffing those sales consultants with money, TVs, iPods, or you're not physically writing with them on that day, they're not selling your brand. Hmm. And so we kind kind of took a step back and I had previously been um, the salesperson here based in Florida. And I hated the weather in New York where we were living at the time. So we decided, why don't we just head back to Florida where we have so many connections and an existing customer base and start there. 
And so we did. We literally put foot to pavement. We'd have our three hero products. We'd go out and sample the salon. Hey, I'll be back in two weeks. If you love it, great. And we started to build small territories, um, local territories that way. And once we got it up big enough, we would, well, we did hire a part-time salesperson, just part-time. It was a stylist who worked in one of our salons. And we, we turned those babies over to her to now turn into toddlers and to adults. And then it would free us up to move two hours south. And we'd start a new little pocket down there. And then we'd head two hours north and start a new pocket up there. And as we started to gain momentum, um, we started to gain some some money and we started to gain some notoriety on the shelves. We started to pique interest in not only other salons, but in smaller distributors throughout the U.S., which mm-hmm. we realized was where our, our niche was if we were going to partner with distributors. It was those that had seven or less lines, had five or less employees and really could put the blinders on and focus on growing helium every day, not just the day that we were with them. That is awesome. And and so talk about some of those early times uh, selling door to door. I imagine you got some doors slammed in your face. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I, I imagine some people are like, I mean, I've never heard of you and these are, you know, name brands on here. And, and it's got to be tough to get people to say, yes, I want you on the shelf with these, these products that consumers already know. Absolutely. And when you were, well, at the time we were in the era of um, Sephora had started carrying name brand products. Ulta was absolutely in their baby stages of, of growth. And it you're, you're trying to convince a stylist to convince their customer in the chair to buy a specific product when they're only there once every eight weeks. When I pass by, I can't tell you how many hairsprays and shampoos when I'm in the grocery store four four times in one week. So really creating a, a great price point for our customers was super important. And also explaining, I always sold on education. You know, what are the benefits behind the brand? And why is this product specific for this customer? And I think knowing those niche pockets of information could, and knowing it forward, backwards, front, south, east, and west allowed me to almost always have the answer to a no at hand. I will tell you the one thing that I did take personally, and I still do, is when someone would criticize the packaging. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I might... I don't have very thick skin. And so that one always hurt me a bit because, you know, it's like your baby, you put your blood, your sweat, your tears and your money into this. And somebody's telling you, oh, well, you don't look like Alterna or, or you're not expensive enough. It's probably not good. And so definitely having years of experience has taken that edge off of me to take it less personally. Yeah. What about e-commerce? In in 2007, as you're just getting started, were you thinking about e-commerce at that time? Were were you not? Like, where were were you at with that? Yeah. So that's, again, where the husband and wife partnership and age difference really came into play. Um, And I used to say, you know, our kids, we would sit at dinner and our two girls would say, stop fighting. And I'd say, (laughs) we're fighting over payroll. Like, 
this isn't what mom and dads fight about. Most mom and dads don't work together and, you know, talk about HR issues over, you know, mac and cheese. Um, <laughs> but I will, I will say that initially my late husband wanted nothing to do with e-commerce. And honestly, our e-commerce business really didn't even come about until after his passing. I was always a proponent of e-commerce because it's direct. I mean, how, why not? Right. Your margins are better. You're direct to the consumer. It's, it's, um, it's just a, such a wider market that's so much easier to market to. Those were tough conversations that never really went anywhere, obviously, until I took over. And come 2017, we said, at least specific to our industry, you're selling to a customer who's wholesale. She doesn't want you selling online because you're taking her customer away. So how do you satisfy both of those needs? I want to sell to this consumer over here, but I want to keep this wholesale customer happy. And so at the time, we did not have national coverage as far as um, sales consultants to wholesale. So that was one benefit for me. I had an opportunity to open up e-commerce to maybe those consumers who didn't have a salon nearby that still wanted to buy product. So that was my that was kind of my first little loophole into e-commerce. So I said, okay, well, nobody seems upset about that yet. Now, I don't want my existing customers to think I'm stealing the customer in the chair. So now how do I conquer that? So what we did is we actually priced our products $1 more at MSRP on our website than what a salon would actually sell them in-house. Plus, we were offering bi-monthly promotions to the salon owners. So I'm going to give you an example. Several years ago, we had what was called an aerosol partner program. So an aerosol partner would sell our hairspray at $14. Every other Joe Schmo who wasn't an aerosol partner would sell our hairspray at $18. If a consumer went to our website to buy that hairspray, it's going to be $19. Plus they were paying $4.95 shipping at the time. Mm. So my benefit is if I go to my stylist and I buy it for $14 from her, I can almost get two for the price I would if I sat at home and bought it online. So what am I going to do? I'm probably just going to buy two next time I'm there and call it a day. I'm happy. My stylist is happy and I've got extra product. I'm not going to run out, which is if you're a woman and you have found a product that you love, you don't want to run out of it. That's smart. I mean, it, but this is like 2018 or so that you're just moving forward with e-commerce. Yeah, this was in 2017. Um, and, and so that was a great way for us to really satisfy the needs of a wholesale business and also the needs of the direct to consumer who wanted to buy at home. Yeah. Um, and so trucking along, business is great. And then boom, we're all hit in the face with COVID, right? And of course, COVID changed so many businesses that we're still lucky enough to be in business and salons are closed. So now what? Now we really need to capitalize on this little, this little keyhole in the door that we've opened for e-commerce. And so at that time I had a friend of mine who had started his own marketing firm um, and he was a one man show. He was doing web design. He was doing Facebook ads. He was doing SEO. And I said, like, 
let's try it. I'll give you this much of a budget. I, my budget at the time was $5,000 a month. And I said, let's like see what we can do. And we started doing, it was called Tuesdays at 10. And it was on Facebook, Facebook Tuesdays at 10. And every Tuesday I got on and I did a live and it was what, uh, it was on what our customers wanted from us. It was either product tutorials, education, um, trends, how to's. And those coupled with really funneling down to knowing who is our customer and targeting her specifically on Facebook, it was like Mm. these fireworks just took off. And I felt like such an idiot that I had waited so long to sell direct to the consumer. It was like years and years of profit that I had wasted. So Beth, a couple things about that. So, um, you know, when we were looking at the business, that growth trend that you're talking about was pretty apparent when we looked at the financials. What did you see in terms of like profitability for the business? How were your margins different for the direct to consumer? Maybe not specifically, but just generally. Um, and, and then how did you start to think about the business going forward at that point? So speaking about margins specifically, our margins direct to the consumer were now almost, if not double what they were direct to the wholesale, because we really were trying to keep like at a 50% markup um, from our cost of goods. So it was not only this explosion of, of immediate growth, but it was an explosion of immediate cash flow that was not only immediate, but wow, now it's consistent. So now I was taking that Facebook marketing budget, which was 5,000. And now I said, okay, this month I can give you seven. Let's see what we can do with seven. One thing that I can look back on and say, as far as um, the marketing strategy that I would have changed is we were tunnel visioned into Facebook. Mm. And that I, I attribute it because that's what my marketing guy knew at the time. And he knew it. He knew how to do it well. In hindsight, I would have taken that budget and I would have divvied it up between TikTok and Instagram now. Um, but you only know what you know at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Beth, let's back up a, a little bit. Um, so from 2007 to 2017, when you get on e-commerce, um, you, you said something like there were a lot of expensive mistakes Besides not being on e-commerce, what were some of those expensive mistakes? <laughs> packaging. <laughs> um, packaging was not a big mistake, but I made mistakes there because I was doing what I knew how to do, even if I knew it wasn't the most efficient way to do it. So I'm going to give you an example. To keep our packaging in the U.S., we had a specific product called Framing Paste. Framing paste comes in a, in a puck, like what most men use, a, a paste pomade product. So we would get those from a manufacturer in Louisiana. Those would then be shipped. This is going to sound ridiculous now that I say it out loud. Those were shipped from Louisiana to Brooklyn, New York, to a screen printer who would then screen print. He would repack it and then we would ship it to New York. Or, I'm sorry, New Hampshire, where our warehouse was at the time. In New Hampshire, it would be filled. It'd be palletized. 
And then we'd ship it back down here to Florida to be stored, packed back up and shipped out wholesale or direct to consumer. So is it stupid? <laughs> yeah, it was really stupid, but it worked and it was something that didn't need an immediate fix. It had a Band-Aid on it, but I knew I wouldn't have to replace the Band-Aid for a while, so I just left it. But those exorbitant shipping costs over and over again just added to my cost of goods that was never passed on to my consumer. And so that, for instance, was just a one example. Um, another was an example. We had a packaging change. Um, again, to try and minimize our packaging costs, we went to what is known as an airless pump on one of our products. Well, nobody knew how an airless pump worked, not even our chemist who was filling the bottles. <laughs> so they were filled without one of the plastic components put onto the bottom to literally hold all of the product in the bottle. And we got pallets delivered to us that were literally just oozing product out of oh, the bottle. No. Oh. oh, it was it was like the best smelling warehouse ever. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it it was I mean pallets of product wasted. Oh. You know what's interesting, Beth though, there there's so many so many sellers that we've talked to that are that have these exact same sto stories like this of, of products that got destroyed or shipping. So like with the shipping example specifically, did you did you ever come up with a better way? you know, like a better mousetrap and what did that look like? Yeah. Well, the better mousetrap, what, th so there's two options to that. So the better mousetrap that we did now that I have, have sold and have somebody else that's taking care of that is working with a manufacturer that has larger minimum order quantities. So they will um, mass produce the pucks and screen print all at the same time. Yeah. Ship to our New Jersey lab where they're filled, and now we ship out of New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. So it's it's the way it should have been. Yeah. Um, the only other way that I knew to solve that particular problem, again, Alibaba and out-of-the-country vendors that will, again, create the molds and also screen print all-in-one. Yeah, and so the, the key there is the MOQs, right? Because cause yeah. Your the challenge you had was not that you didn't know how to do it better, is that it was expensive to get that higher order quantity. So there's there's a there's a cost to being able to implement that efficiency. You kind of have to grow into that. Exactly. And that particular product, for instance, isn't one of our top sellers. I don't need to have four years worth of inventory. But yeah. for me to do it the right way is exactly how I what I would end up with when I needed to take literally any money I had and put it into our aerosols, which were our, which still are our number one sellers, but also require minimum order quantities that I can't, there's no negotiating those. Yeah. Beth, you've mentioned your late husband a, a few times and in 2017, he dies of, of colon cancer. Yeah. Um, tell us about the, the diagnosis and you know, what, what, you know, what's going on at, at that time. So step back to 2014, business is growing small, uh, slow, but steady. And he was um, going in to have his gallbladder taken out. It was an outpatient procedure. Come in at seven. You'll be out by noon. Great. I literally still remember what I wore that day. 
the doctor came out, said, I need to talk to you, took me into a private room. And he said, um, the gallbladder is not the issue. Your husband has stage four colon cancer Mm. and he has maybe 10 months to live. And we at the time have a three-year-old and five-year-old at home with a babysitter. And I say my, the best example is the, the snow globes that you shake at Christmas and it's this beautiful snowy picture. I said that, that imagine that's our life. And somebody didn't just shake it. They just, they threw it on the ground and they shattered it. Mm. I couldn't believe it. It, it didn't seem real. And he came out of surgery. He's in recovery. And he says, oh, gosh, I feel so much better. Oh. And they hadn't done a thing. Hmm. And so they scheduled him. That was on a Friday. Our daughter's fifth birthday party was on Saturday at a house full of kids coming. And they said, well, we can't really do much for you over the weekend. Why don't you just stay in here? because it's going to be easier for us to schedule everything on Monday if you're just already here. And so I went home. I had a birthday party. I went through this fog of shit (laughs) and went back to the hospital Monday. He had a colonoscopy. They said, oh my God, great news. It's not bile duct cancer. It's only stage four colon cancer. Diagnosis hadn't changed at all. <laughs> yeah. It was just a better, worse scenario. So he went in on that that week and he had a hernia fixed. He had his port put in. He had his gallbladder taken out and he started chemo every two weeks from that point in 2014 until 2017, July 12th, 2017. He passed away at home and I was thankfully with him. Um, and that's exactly how he wanted it. Wow. Uh, I'm so sorry you had to go through all that. Yeah. Gosh. So to, so 2017, thankfully, we had had enough time to prepare as he, he survived almost three years. And so I was really able to learn a lot of what he was doing in his roles as far as, um, you know, he did payroll. He did the taxes. He did the forecasting. He did the bottle ordering. I just printed out checks and I would, you know, try and be nice to people. (laughs) And I was able to coast really through the rest of 2017 without much effort put into the business. It really was on cruise control. Um, And then 2018 is where I made some financial mistakes as far as um, I knew, you know, COVID, scared me as a business owner, just as it did so many other people. And I think a bit of that panic was, let me see where I can throw money and I'll just focus on where it sticks. Mm. And that, unfortunately, as far, you know, whether it was packaging, a, a big downfall of that was social media. You know, everyone thinks the the route to success is with influencers and I learned that lesson the hard way and that was not successful for me at first because I was going about it the wrong way. So 2018 was expensive. And then I feel like 2019 really became like a rebirth of the brand. Yeah. Well, okay. So as 
as you're going through the the cancer, was there a thought of like, screw this. I, I don't want to go on like this. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to keep going with, with helium here. Um, there were many times, like I wrote my own resignation letter, <laughs> but I didn't have anybody to give it to. So I think it just made me feel better to like vent how much I hated it and how much I hated life and how unfair it was. But when I was in it, I also didn't see the beauty of my kids were never in daycare. And I took my kids to school every day and I picked my kids up. And I mean, Mondays, I dropped my husband at the hospital. That was two minutes from our house. Thank God. I take my kids to school. I'd go home and I'd work. I'd pick my kids up and we'd go back and have popsicles in the infusion room as he finished chemo. Mm. And it just, it, it became a routine. But quite honestly, as many times, and my, my sister would say to me, well, why don't you just quit? And I said, well, what the fuck am I going to do? Like, yeah. I need a paycheck. Like, am I going to stick my kids in daycare while my husband's at chemo and go work for somebody else? Like, it sounds easy, but it just doesn't work that way. And it, it kind of, it created a lot of resentment on my behalf because I felt like I was left to clean up this mess. I was stuck. What am I going to do? I have this warehouse full of hundreds of thousands of dollars of inventory. Like, what do you mean? Just quit. Like it's not an option. Yeah. So 2018, you're, you're, you're growing, making mistakes, 2020, COVID hits and you've really got to go full throttle on e-commerce. When did you start to look at maybe now's the time to to exit the business? Yeah. You know, as we got into 2020, one of my downfalls was making professional decisions with personal emotions. And well, that's understandable given what you've gone through. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> um, but you know, it doesn't make a, a very good business owner. Mm. Um, because I realized one thing that I was doing, which made me feel so good inside, but I was overpaying my people and I couldn't step that back. It's like negotiating for a car. Like you, you don't work backwards. (laughs) And so I had people on staff that I knew depended on that paycheck I knew they were being paid too much for what they were doing, but it was a personal emotion and a personal relationship that I just couldn't out of my heart and out of my head, change it. That was just one thing that's, that started to actually suck cash out of my business. And when I started to see financial situations, I always thought I'm not, this is what I would say to myself. I'm not giving up. I'm giving it to God. And it always works out. And unfortunately, Jason, I kind of just continued to say that with no plan. I just said, oh, well, when it gets bad enough, I just give it to God and he'll figure it out for me. And it wasn't really happening that way anymore. (laughs) I knew I had God still on my side, and I don't mean that, but God wasn't fixing my financial situations. With COVID, my aerosol company that I worked with specifically, it's one of the largest in the U.S., and 
I was the small guy in the totem pole. They had been sold three times by the time I started working with them. I knew they really didn't want to do business with me anymore because I'm just honestly a nobody. I'm running 30,000 cans at a time and they're dealing with spray paint manufacturers running a million cans. Hmm. And they're not taking, they're not cleaning lines for me to run 30 cans. Um, And so I was getting, and I'm not joking about this. In 2020, I had three price increases from my aerosol manufacturer in one year. And I, on top of that, had 20 week lead times. Um, So they were making it very difficult for me to do business with them. So when I started to see that my top sellers were going to be out of stock and I wasn't going to have them back in stock, I started to say, okay, I have no more personal money that I can put into this. I haven't paid myself in months. What am I even doing this for? Like, I, this isn't fun. I'm not even doing what I enjoy in this business. And I really came to this realization that for this, this, my, my world needed to go in one direction. And right now it was split. I was either going to give a hundred percent to buy business and something's going to suffer. Right. And it's going to be my kids because there's nobody there to pick up the slack for me, or I'm going to give a hundred percent to my kids and my business isn't going to go where I want it to be. And part of me has always held on to the business because of my late husband. You know, it was like our third baby and I couldn't, I couldn't give up on it. I, I had to figure out a way to keep it going. Um, and that's when my conversations really with Brent and Isaac started of, is there maybe somebody else that will want this and will want to take it to the next level, not bury it, not change it, but continue to grow it. And when we started having those conversations, I was, it kind of like gave me this little glimmer of hope. Like I came to peace in my heart that I could now give this to someone else to grow. And I could be okay with that. I wasn't killing it. I wasn't quitting it. I was making a personal and professional decision to continue to grow it where I knew it could be, but I couldn't do by myself. Yeah. That seems like the perfect time. Isaac Brent, what, what do you remember about those initial conversations? I remember I mean, as Beth's showing through here, she was so easy to talk to. And the, and the great thing about Beth is she knew her client. She is her client. So when she first came to us with the situation, um, we thought finding someone to buy this company is going to be no problem, especially <laughs> if Beth's willing to stay aboard. Uh, and, it, you know, there's a lot of hair care products and capturing market demands, the biggest challenge in that in that space. And Beth really figured that out. Right. So we knew it was a great brand. We knew, we knew we would get her through it. And it was, it was fun working with Beth. I think the other thing that was um, important is we knew the product was great. We had, we actually talked to several celebrity hairstylists early on that were, were using the product in their own salons and were, you know, they were just enthusiastic about the quality, about the ingredients, about the, 
um, about how their clients liked it. So the, so the product was, was good. The challenge we had, and, and we, we can talk about this is that as we went through the, the sale process, um, we, the, the company ran out of inventory. And so, you know, most of the transactions we run are, are kind of positive cash flow generating businesses that are on a growth trend. In this case, we had a, we had a great, great brand, great products, but a, a financial issue kind of mid transaction. And that created, you know, a lot of complexity for us to, to navigate, to still get it, get to an outcome that was going to be, you know, good for Beth and, and that we could find a buyer to, to sign up for. So w- why did that happen? W- w- Beth, were you just kind of done at that point? Um, I was financially, emotionally, and mentally checked out. Once I had made the decision that this business could pass on to the next growth generator, I didn't really, my, my emotional connection had been depleted. My mental connection had been depleted. And financially, I had gotten into a situation that um, I, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain it. I was in a shit pit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like I said, I hadn't been paying myself. My prices had increases, had increased from my vendors. I wasn't passing that on. And I didn't have any more of my personal funds to invest. And so I had reached out um, to several of the uh, loan companies that are, you know, quick turnaround loans. They're predatory loans. Mm. And at the time, I thought this was my, again, my quick fix. I'm like, oh, no problem. By the time these are due, I'll have the funds in and it'll be paid. And I won't even, I won't even really have to think twice about this because it's a, it's a short term fix. And then that one short-term fix became a second loan. And then that second loan became a third loan. But I didn't really have to worry about the first two because that third one was actually going to pay off those other two. And in my mind, that sounded great. In reality, that never happened. And so I'm running out of inventory. I don't have anywhere else that I can pull pull funds from. And I really thought this is this is the place that I never thought I'd be. I never thought I would be at the grocery store and my credit card was declined. Mm-hmm. And that happened. It happened. I really was at the end of my rope and Brent and Isaac were trying to be so creative in different scenarios and different buyers. And how can we do this? And how can we do that? And a buyer fell through and and it it created this perfect storm of exactly how it was supposed to be. Wow. And Brent, Isaac, I mean, it, it sounds like Beth needed a, a bit of a lifeline and that that's not exactly negotiating it from a position of strength here. So <laughs> how do you how do you package that to potential buyers, right? And like you, you've got to be on on her team here, but you're thinking like this isn't a great situation. Yeah, no, it, it it got to be really challenging just from a traditional brokerage perspective. And we, you know, we had gotten to know Beth throughout this process and really wanted to get her to a good outcome, um, or at least the best possible outcome that we that we could. And so what we ended up doing is 
we we had to negotiate with the lender. So we had a we had a buyer that made an offer that was less than the amount of the debt outstanding on the business at that time. But what was good about the offer is it included an opportunity to Beth for Beth then to work with the buyer and and manage parts of the business and had pretty significant upside potential for her post closing. Um, but we actually we got an attorney involved. We went to all the banks and effectively nego- it was a negotiated bankruptcy buyout where we took the offer that we had from the buyer. We went to the banks and said, "Look, you guys have to take a lower payoff amount than what's owed, or." you're not going to get anything essentially. Hmm. And it, we were able to negotiate somewhere between 25 and 45% discount on the outstanding loans without going through bankruptcy, by the way. We just we just negotiated payoffs without a bankruptcy and we're able to get the banks to take a discount in order to get some principal repayment and put Beth in a position where she was able to sell the company and not owe a bunch of money at the end. Because that was, that was the outcome that I think would have been, you know, maybe catastrophic, right? Is you sell the company, you don't have the income generation and you still owe hundreds of yeah. thousands of dollars. What we realized is we need, we, and, and we talked with, with Beth, you know, in, in a lot of detail throughout this process to, to try to understand what, you know, what her goals were too, but we wanted to get to an outcome where, you know, she could get out from under this debt, which the interest rates were absorbing it and the fees were absorbing it. And the lenders were very aggressive with kind of how they were treating it. And so we wanted to get her out of that and get her in a place where, you know, she had upside without this, this big debt cliff hanging over her head. And so I think we were able to do that. We were able to negotiate discounts with all the lenders. It took a ton of work, but I think, you know, I think the outcome was pretty good. And, you know, Beth, I'm just curious kind of what, what your perspective on, on that whole process was. I had loans from all the names you hear on Sirius XM that are out there willing to give you money. <laughs> um, and one thing that I did not realize is they're really all in cahoots in, in the sense that if one accepts terms, they'll all accept terms. Hmm. And so once we got, and I had a lawyer on board with Brenton Isaac and she was my mouthpiece and she started a conversation and the first lender, which was my smallest amount that I owed, agreed to 42% off. And so now I could prove to this lender, hey, they agreed to 42% off. She said, well, I'll only do it if everybody else does it. <laughs> so I went to, uh, our lawyer went to the largest um, debtor which was six figures. And they not only took 42% off, they actually went to 61% off. Whoa. And it was this instant, like, oh, oh my gosh, there's, okay, there's light at the end of this tunnel. Like, there's going to be good that comes out of this. Once I had those under my belt and we did the closing paperwork, now I just had to worry about the little guys. You know, my $70,000 credit card or the $30,000 line of credit. And so I realized I can tackle these on my own the same as the lawyer did with the predatory loans. Let me, let me try it. So I did. And you know what? They all started agreeing. And I have not had one that has not agreed to less than 42%. Wow. That's awesome. It leaves me with 
as Isaac said, in our um, buyer agreement, I am on board still with the company for a minimum of three years. So I not only have an agreement with them that will bring in income, I still get to be a part of the decision making, still the face and the founder of the brand, but I can now drop my shoulders to know that this massive amount that I thought was going to be sitting on my shoulders, it really isn't that massive. And this is, I can be done with this in six months. Mm. And you know, this, this isn't why you go into owning a business. You want the financial freedom. You want the physical freedom. And I know I'm not the only one who thinks, ah, I, I don't want to ask because I'm too embarrassed or I don't want to ask how, how did she fund her business? I should probably, I'll, I'll just try and figure it out. And, and that's what I was doing. I was listening, but I wasn't asking because I didn't want anybody to really know the depths of the financial difficulty that I was in. Yeah. And Jason, one of the things I want to point out too about some of these inventory lenders that are out there is that the way that they are restructuring, are structuring their payments is based on a percentage of the revenue each month. It's pretty much, you know, automated approval, automated underwriting. So what happened in the case with, with Helium Hair is they, you know, one lender has taken 30% of revenue every, every month as their payment. And so if revenue goes up, that payment goes up. If revenue goes down, that payment goes down. But if there's four lenders taking 30% of your revenue, that creates a massive problem immediately where n- none of the lenders knew what the other lenders were pulling out. And so it just, it just drained, drained the business of cash pretty quickly. Uh, and, and I, I think what we've seen as we're talking to, to other, um, owners and founders is there's a lot of people in this situation that have taken these, um, inventory loans out with these type of repayment terms, um, over the past couple of years. And then if there's any kind of a pullback in the business, you can immediately end up underwater in terms of cash flow, uh, and it can it can be it can be a really fast change from feeling like the business is healthy to being like oh my god I'm gonna go out of business, and yeah. it can happen it can happen in like two to three months where it just it's really whiplash from a cash flow perspective because all of a sudden these payments just keep coming out and um, you know they don't they don't adjust till the following month where they go down so so it's like if the cash flow is going down your payments are more than your cash flow um, on a monthly basis. And and we've seen a lot of people in similar situations to Beth. And I think one of the messages that I wanted to convey is that there, there are ways to get out of that scenario um, and negotiate payoffs and get to a buyout. Now, where I think what Beth did a great job of is she, you know, she was very realistic with kind of the situation and the expectations that she had around what, what she needed out of the exit. And so that, that helped us to get to a deal that worked because it was, it's a tough sell to, to, to find a buyer that, you know, is basically looking at this saying, well, you know, why didn't it work and how am I going to make it work? Um, and so, you know, we, we had to talk to a lot of buyers to find the right buyer and ultimately found a buyer who really understand, stood the business well and, and, and had some capital to inject, um, and, and I'm curious, Beth, you know, how, how's it going now and how, how have things been since, since the close? I feel ridiculous that I did not do this sooner. <laughs> um, I have had a 
a challenge with the transition of not doing everything on my own. Mm-hmm. As as you know, business owners we're all type A A A A personalities, and if I don't do it myself, it's not going to get done right. And letting go of that, um, I don't necessarily want to call it ego, but that power to know that somebody else can just handle it. Um, at first, it it was emotional for me, and I could not be more thankful now. And um, my buyer, I I write him. I mean, we talk all the time, but I physically make a point. About twice a month, I send him an email just saying, thank you. I never thought it'd be the first of the month and I would actually smile <laughs> instead of cry. Um, I'm not paying taxes and payroll and the warehouse and uh, corrugated and inventory and sourcing. And business is thriving. And it has allowed me to get back to the side of not only what I enjoy doing in the business, but to be present as a mom, which my girls are now 12 and 14, and it's an impressionable age that I need to be present for. And so it's really, I would have, I, I constantly, I wake up every day and I thank God, I am so grateful. And I never thought I could go from what was almost one of the worst years of my life to feeling so grateful. Beth, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. One last question for, from me, how do you think about your legacy with helium hair as you've gone from 2007 knocking on doors, uh, to now having exited the business and having some sort of relief? You know, I'm going to get teary eyed now that you just asked me that I thrive in knowing what I have learned the hard way to pass along to others that I can help them grow or change their business to make it more successful for them. Um, it, it is such a rewarding feeling. And I am so proud to know that this brand is going to continue not only in this industry, but in growth as well, because it is such, it is not just such a great product, but we, in reality, we don't really sell product, right? You sell the emotion behind it. And ours is such a story that so many people can connect to because I'm a business owner. I'm a mom. I was a wife. And people say, oh, my God, what would I do? What would I do if I were her? Hmm. And then the caveat is, oh, I try the products and they're great. And so knowing that not only in the in the beauty industry that you can help women look as good as they should feel, that is very rewarding. But to know that I've done everything that I can to continue to send this brand into the future of growth is rewarding and to help others that were in my shoes along this journey as well, that that's priceless.
All right, that was Beth DeMaio, and you can find Helium Hair at heliumhair.com with helium spelled H-E-A-L-I-U-M. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Deal Closers podcast brought to you by WebsiteClosers.com. If you like the show, be sure to rate us, write a review, press the follow button, or share with your network. And of course, if you're looking for help selling your e-commerce business, be sure to visit WebsiteClosers.com. This episode was edited and produced by Earfluence. I'm Jason Gillikin, and we'll see you next time on the Deal Closers podcast.